Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Couple Nerds Podcast with your host, Matt Strachek, and myself, Peter Fendera. This is a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot news and topics, one conversation at a time. Thank you for tuning in. We guys are having an amazing Friday. Thank you guys for following us. Thank you for everybody that's watching us on YouTube. We're on YouTube. Patreon coming soon. I want to confidently say within the next month, I want to say it's going to be out. We do have something out there for you guys on there, but still in the works. So thank you for your patience. It's going to be out. And we're also going to start live streaming very soon. We're just trying to figure out some issues that we're having with audio, things like that. We're, we're MacBook users. Not every program is MacBook friendly yet, but it's going to be there. And make sure you guys comment, subscribe on YouTube. Make sure you leave a comment on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Make sure you leave a review. You know, it keeps us going, keeps us motivated. And thank you so much. What's up, Matt? What's up? So in this episode, we're going to talk about code status. And code status is not only for medical professionals, it's for anybody that's listening because code status is usually not talked about fully until there's a medical crisis and there's a lot of emotions in play and things don't end up fairly, you know, the right way sometimes. So I think this is a great episode to cover for nurses, non-nurses to find out what is code status, what happens in the hospital when code statuses are put into place and the different types of code statuses. It's a very like difficult thing to to bring up. It's a very good, difficult thing to kind of figure out. But yeah, code status is something that you could so conveniently kind of just pass by and not really focus on, right? Because nobody really goes through like their normal life, normal schedule and think, hey, I wonder what code status I should be in a hospital, right? No one really thinks about that. Yeah. And even if you do, you're... You, you're hesitant to even create advanced directives or hesitant to even put something in writing. Why? Because it's not something that, that you expect to happen to you, right? It's, that's why it's so easy to kind of put off to the side. But it's very important when you're in hospital. Yeah, I think as a medical pro- professional, we always talk about it. Like, when you go on break, the first thing a nurse will ask sometimes is, hey, what the, what's the code status? Mm-hmm. So they know what to do. And, like, among us, like, it's an easy conversation to have, you know, because we need to know. And just like you said, like, we don't talk about it over breakfast. Like, hey, what do you want us to do when your heart stops beating? Or do you think you want to get intubated? Do you want to maybe wait a week? What if you are in a car accident and it's longer than two weeks in your coma? Are you going to get a trach and a peg? Mm. Like, those are those are conversations that should be brought up maybe once in a while between your family or loved ones just to kind of understand what should we do in these, you know, uh, situations. You think it's... Okay, so for us, we're in our mid-20s, right? So it's not something that we don't really think about death and dying very much being hospitalized right like it doesn't come like go through our head like like you know what if one day i'm gonna be sick it doesn't really go through my head that often maybe once in a while but you know how we have the erickson stage of, of develop of uh development i wonder if like the later stage because we're obviously in one stage there's another stage after us right i think there's actually two more after us but i'm not 100 sure but you know we're in one stage but there's another stage that follows this one right i wonder how our thoughts are going to change about hospitalization about how our thoughts and impressions of our life and of things that we do are going to change in the next couple of years when we're like, maybe not next couple, probably like next quarter century, right? And when we're maybe, because we're 26 right now, I wonder how our thoughts are gonna change about this when we're in our 50s, 60s, right? Because yeah. when you've lived that long, you have a different mindset, a different way of thinking, right? Your brain's, it's, your brain's continuously developing, right? So it takes 50, 60 years for you to reach that stage of, of, of thought, right? So for me and you, we don't think about hey, I could be sick in the next five years. I could get cancer in the next five years. Think We don't think about that. It doesn't even cross our minds. 
But when you get up there in age, you start thinking about that. Like, hey, what if I have a stroke? What if this? Who's going to inherit this and that? See, because we're not there yet. So I wonder how, how like, close that is goes through the minds of people that are older, that actually might have to decide on our co-status within the next like few years, even months or even weeks, you know? Yeah, I mean, based on the hospital, you would think that people would know more about it or would care more about it, but yet, time and time again, we have these patients come in and it was never discussed, you know? So I like, I I wonder how that's going to change. And I think the questions we have to ask ourselves here with when it comes to co-status is, you know, what's your relationship with death and how do you look at death? Because if you're super fearful of it, you're never going to think about those topics, especially in your 20s, right? Like, that's very fearful. I don't want to die. I want to have to do so much things. I want to go skydive and X, Y, and Z. But as an older patient, you would think they would think a little bit more. But are you fearful of dying, though? Like, think about it. I, I, I think I have a very good understanding of death. Like, I think um, I have enough integrity behind me. If I were to pass away, I think I'd make peace with it. I wouldn't be a ghost that would haunt you, basically. You know, never know, dude. After I pass away, I know. I, I I think I would just do my honors. I think I've already lived such a great life, even though I'm only you know 26. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I'm trying to. The thing I'm trying to hit is that like our concept of like death, like we don't really conceptualize it very very well. We don't we don't really personalize it because like we're at that age, we're 26. Like we we're still at, at the point in our lives where we think we could live forever. You know. Sure. Yeah. You know, our body still has. We're not even peaking or, or anything like that. So, like, our body is still pushing forward. But when you're, like, 60s, 70s, like, you're already a lot closer to, to death. You know what I'm saying? And those, start to, those thoughts start to take over a lot more. You know, because when we do stupid shit, we don't think about, you know, dying, think about the risks that, that are going to happen to us. Or maybe maybe now, we, now we do because we've personally had an experience of somebody fucking yeah. dying. But, like, when you reach that age, like, you know, you're not going to want to do certain things because you know that, hey, you're... You're older, your body's more fragile, and you're not built for this kind of thing, right? Because you could, your chance of dying are more than, you know, ours, right? Yeah. And I'm really curious on how, like, this, like, uh, the thought and the thinking behind death and dying are different our age compared to somebody that's older. Right. No, like, they, you know, imagine if you're talking to your grandma or grandpa about, you know, about death and dying. They're going to have a whole different perspective because they had the same perspective as us, very similar to ours, not necessarily the same exact one. But they had a very similar perspective to death and dying when they were our age to what we are thinking now, but it's completely different now. Yeah, I bet, man. And then, yeah. then you also have the uh, people on the other side of the spectrum, like my one of my grandparents that I talked to, and when you when I asked her about code status, like she just like didn't know. She's like, I don't know, I don't think about those things. Just do whatever, bury me anywhere. Is kind of what she said in yeah. Polish. You know, it's kind of funny how that sounds, but it's like, yeah, grandma, this is a serious damn conversation, and they're still neglecting the fact, man. Yeah, but they're like eighty something, it's mm-hmm. wild. It's like, a, I don't know, it's interesting because Polish, and in one sense, it's good because like she, that kind of shows that she's ready, whatever's going to happen is going to happen out of her Accepting control, it. it's acceptance, but then it's a little bit of like stubbornness, that Polish stubbornness where it's like, you know, I'm not sure if it's stubbornness or it might be a little bit of even fear, like you going to the hospital or you're, you're talking with somebody from social work or somebody's talking about your cold status and you talking about like, hey, you know, I'm seven years old talking about what people should do and not do to me in the hospital. Like that's gonna kind. It's it's a scary thing to think about. Like you know, you don't want to. You don't really want to think about that. You know, that's why it's so hard. I think because that's when people. So we have our own idea of death and dying. But when you're actually doing your advanced directives and you're deciding on your host status, like one at one, one on one, or with your family, that's like the only time where the conversation and the ideas and the thought process is literally around dying. That's that's like you 
being in a room almost with death. Oh, hell yeah. It changes the atmosphere, man. You know? And you see it in the families, too. It's crazy, right? Like, it, like it make a decision, you're just like, damn, it's the first time that I have to sit down and actually think about, hey, when I'm in a hospital about to die, like, what do they want done? Yeah, I, I had this conversation one time with my parents because I thought it was so important, you know, and I and I gave those questions to them, like, what would you like for, you know, for you to be done? Mm -hmm. And I think, like, getting a trach and all that stuff was never an option or talked about. But, you know, of course, you want a fighting chance on a ventilator, but it's hard to decide for how long, you know. And I, I don't know if you want to get into stories already, but we should probably first talk about what is code status mm -hmm. before I get into, like, you know, stories about, like, having this situation pop up as the code is actually happening it's like it's wild are you sure so for those that want to know like what is code status correct so all, every patient that's um, admitted to the hospital whether it's inpatient or outpatient having surgery you are designated a code status meaning if there a, is an emergency happening what type of emergent treatments do you want for us to be done what do you want to receive for example if your heart is going to stop beating what do you want us to do do you want us to do cpr or do you want to just make peace with what's happening in the situation? So everybody's going to have a different code status. And then it gets broken down into even like the different things we could do in that code, which we're going to go into the different types. I think, so I'm glad you already spoke about what is code status. Like well, I remember when I talked to my parents about um, like what did they want done if they were to go to hospital and things like that. This, I talked to them a few years ago and they basically said, if there's a chance, you know, do everything. But if there isn't, then, then you don't got to do anything. But then I asked, I'm like, what do you guys think um, happens when like, you know, you, you um, like you when you code? Because like, they didn't understand because because we know a lot. We know a lot more than typical American citizen. But we know a lot more about medicine than our parents because our parents yes. never dealt with anything in the medical field. Like back in Poland, like people were scared to go to a doctor. Like, you know, if you go to a doctor, like it's it's always bad news. Not it's, That's what that's the kind of the stigma with it is if you go to a doctor, it's bad. No, there's preventative measures, but people are still kind of hesitant to do it because they 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 um they say that or they feel like going to doctor's bad same with dentist you may go to dentist you know for pain you go to doctor for bad news things like that that's just like my dad we got to get rid of but it's going to take years to to get past that definitely next generation but, mm, but when i actually talked to my parents they weren't even sure what these like full measures are like they didn't know that we could if you can't extubate you we give you a trach like like they didn't know that's like an option treatment option like they didn't know that we give you not only chest compression but we also give you meds during the chest compression they don't they, they thought we still give mouth to mouth, but in the hospital, you don't give mouth to mouth. You have an ambu bag. Right. We intubate right away. Like, you can ask your, your parents these, these questions, and they might give you answers because that's the way they're, they're, they're taught. You, you, you get a question, you give an answer, right? But they don't really know what the hell goes on. And that's how a lot of patients are as well. But I feel like living in the United States, American people are more um, more in tune and more knowledgeable on like the hospital system. Yeah, I think definitely people from third world countries and foreign people have a hard time dealing with it because they don't understand and they, sometimes I feel like certain like Latinos and specific populations like that they're afraid of making this decision based on code status because they feel like they're playing with God's hands in a way mm -hmm. they, they feel like if they say you know DNR do not resuscitate and yet you know oh my god well that she could have lived or he should could have lived you know they go into these like stereotypes about God and they just rather keep the patient full code and just do everything because that's the right thing to do. But yet they don't understand this complex, you know, medical field that we do that, hey, yes, full code is the right thing to do, correct? We want to keep this patient alive. But sometimes that suffering is 
too much for the patient and they're suffering more than their quality of life. And just like quality of life, what's the risk benefit here? And sometimes we just keep these patients alive for too damn long. And that's the sad reality, you know? Yeah, definitely. People want to have people that are religious, things like that. They want to have, um, I mean, I could use multiple words for this, but they want to have nature take its course or, you know, God take, take the course or whatever go the road that they've been paved, right? It's all, you know, it's all almost the same. They don't want to make a decision because they wanted whatever to happen, happen naturally. Yeah. Be that with, with the hand of God or be that with, you know, just nature itself, genetics. Just they don't want that guilt. Exactly. They want that guilt. And like, the thing is that modern medicine, like we have religion, we have people that want to do the homeopathic things, the more naturalistic things. But in, in the medical field, we have tools and ways we can adjust the course of your life. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's say back in the day, if you had a little blood pressure, we couldn't give you, there was no pressures. You would just hypotensive and you would die. Compared to here, if you're hypotensive, you know, we could give you a pressure. You know, if you're agitated, we could give you more propofol, more fentanyl, things like that. We could, I would, essentially, we could genetically modify like your, your medications to kind of have you survive the longest. And, and we do that in, in good faith, in good measure, hoping that you are going to come out of it the same and, and better than than you went in, right? Or not really as better because it's kind of hard to do better, but they want you to come out as healthy as, as you were when yeah, you came it's, in. It's like patient you know? outcome, right? You want yeah. the best quality of life afterwards. Yeah. And that's the, like the goal that everybody strives for. Right. So people always say like, yeah, whatever happens, happens for a reason. Or, you know, I'm going to have it in God's hands or I'm going to have nature do it, do its thing. The thing is like, like if there's a chance for you to live and you, like someone simple, like hypotension, like things like that, we, we could fix that up and then we can make you live a normal life. Like, you know, like that's completely like in our hands and in our controlled medical professionals. Like we, like we could do that. It's not necessarily that we don't touch anything and let nature do its thing because then people will be dying a lot higher rate than they are now. Right. Yeah. It's just like um, typical dialysis, you know, mm. the, the patient technically wouldn't be able to make it. But artificially getting dialysis and getting their, you know, toxins pulled gives them the ability to live longer. Yeah. Just like you, you know, you dealt with LVADs for a long time, correct? Yeah. That patient's heart is already shit. They can't really function themselves. But artificially, we could still keep you alive, correct? Yeah. It just, you know, comes down to that situation. What's the quality of life there? Mm. This is going to sound a little bit weird, but if we could turn like acute illnesses into chronic issues, uh, we could probably have people live better lives you could probably find better treatment and cures for things say that again and if we could turn acute like issues or diseases into chronic issues or diseases we would it would be easier for us to find different cures and better ways of treat and manage things okay right explain, well, of that, explain that a little bit so of course that's, it's gonna be like a, it's gonna fall in different scenarios like obviously like an mi you can't really have that be like a like a chronic thing well, let's say like a like an acute kind of cancer, like can like we could say let's say like pancreatic cancer. Um, the life expectancy for pancreatic cancer is isn't very long, so you call that kind of like like an acute thing because it happens so quickly and we don't we don't catch it in time. But the thing is, like, if we could have this this cancer pancreatic cancer, ex like be extended to instead of life expectancy to be two years, make it five, make it ten we're going to be able to find a cure much better because we have those five years to study it, to see how it grows, see how it yeah. develops in the human body compared to just having like, like those two. You know what I'm saying? If we could somehow um, 
I wanted just to del- prevent just delayed disease. In if a we way. could delay disease in a way, or even when someone catches the disease, if we could ex- extend it to not. Well, it's hard to explain because not every not every acute issue is going to have a chronic counterpart, right? Like a like like a stroke. You can't really have a a chronic stroke, right? That yeah, doesn't make can. sense. But certain diseases that are that aren't as acute like that, like stopping blood flow, things like that, but like um, some quick acting cancer, things like that, if you can extend to be like a chronic disease compared to be like an acute disease, then that better our chances for discovering new treatment modalities and like cures. Yeah. You know? I understand the situation. Yeah. I would say also strokes could be technically long-term because there's ischemic long-term ones and all that. Yeah. Just for the sake of... Mm. Um, uh, one of those punctual ass nurses that's listening, like, yeah, well, you could have a you know chronic, you know, ischemic stroke there. Yeah, the thing is, like, w- w- either, with bro. that is like, then if someone's then in that sense, it wouldn't be like a a, a chronic stroke. It would be just the chronic development of like atherosclerotic plaque. Yeah, you no, know? so that would be in the brain. A, that, that's a different kind of um, different kind of goal with that, right? Because when you have a stroke, what's our goal? Either evacuate the clot or or stop the bleed, right? Those are the acute actions. When you think about the build-up to the stroke, you're thinking about more like clot prevention, things like that, diet. healthy diet, you know, prevention, yeah. So, like I said, not everything could be acute, but that's a good point that you brought up. Yeah, so when it comes to back into code status, right, we have outcome of resuscitation. So I think this is some cool facts that we found here about um, cardiac arrests, and cardiac arrest is basically when the heart stops beating, correct? We have about 350,000 cases a year. The survival rate outside of the hospital is usually less than 12%. And CPR can double or triple your chances of survival. And CPR, what does that stand for? Cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So that's us artificially pumping your heart with our hands on your sternum. We crack that shit, of course. <laughs> Freaking mm-hmm. feels nasty when you do CPR and you feel like your your chest wall is nice and like, you know, fluidy. Kind of mm-hmm. s- sounds crazy to describe, but... You know yeah. you're doing you're doing you're doing quality CPR. If you haven't like felt that happen before, like you know when you have that uh, was that the chicken wing where you is that the chicken wing or some kind of meat where you has like those two bones and you rip and, it? and you break it apart and you like that like that crack. That's, that's kind of how that's kind of how it, like a chest wall sounds. Yeah, you crack mm. somebody's chest. Yeah, yeah. And then based on 2016 survival rates here, if you're outside of the hospital, your chances of survival post your heart-stopping cardiac arrest is 12%. In the hospital, it's less than 25%, which still sounds little bit, you know what I mean? Because usually on TV, like, the team comes in, they do such a good job, patient's alive again. But, you know, we don't get every single code. Mm. I would say that respiratory codes are easier to, of course, because when a patient codes in the hospital, there's two types of codes, usually respiratory or cardiac, correct? Cardiac, your heart stops beating, respiratory, you might have a ton of secretions, something might happen, your airway might get occluded, and we got to intubate you for that reason. You know, that's that's a code. It doesn't, your heart oh, it doesn't always stop beating when it comes to respiratory code. And I know like infants and babies, it's usually all respiratory related, but that's not our profession. So we're not going to really talk about babies here and when it comes to cardiac arrests. Yeah, I mean, the stats seem real low, 12% outside of hospital, 25 in the hospital. That seems super low, and it's actually a little bit less than 25% in the hospital, but Think about it, guys. Like, there's no, there's nothing worse that can happen to you than a code. Like, that's like the last step before literally like like death. You know, there's no like, you know, you could have like AKI, you could have heart failure, you could have CKD, you could have liver failure. But code is like that's the end of the line. So, like, think about it. That's why these numbers are so low because this is literally the end of the line. Like, literally, like your heart is stopped. 
your brain's not getting perfused, your heart's not getting perfused, your lungs aren't getting perfused, you're not breathing, like this, is, this is it. And there's also so many different chronic diseases that you had that built up to this, mm. you know? It just doesn't happen sporadically. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's happened, but that's like minute, minute that it yeah. happens sporadically, like, you know, but, but yeah, it doesn't, just, like Matt said, it doesn't happen just sporadically. Just it doesn't have one cause. A code doesn't have, majority, if not all codes, are not going to have one cause. You know, it's all going to be multiple things. You know, you're acidotic, you know, your pH is high, your, your liver is shot, your kidneys are, are shot, you're just so fluid overloaded, your heart's weak, your left ventricle's damaged, you know, you've had history of a couple of strokes already, so, you know, you have a bunch of occlusion in your brain. It's it's not just one thing. It, there's a lot of issues that have to go wrong for you to it's code. It's a domino effect. Yeah. And to be honest, to to ask ask the question, do you know when codes do happen often? When? During change of shift and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Man, guys, so, like, the thing in the hospital, then, we ICU nurses always laugh about it. It's either there's a rapid response being called or some shit happening at like 6.50, 6.30 in the morning when it's like change of shift and a nurse finally checked up on the patient or it's like, you know, during report towards the end already, like you're making your rounds and this patient just looks like shit. Mm -hmm. It's usually when it happens because, yeah, the floor is busy. You know, I've worked it. Like sometimes you have that one busy patient, you have five other patients, you just don't check up on them, you know? And usually around that time in the hospital, like, shit's the fan. There's a rapid response or something happening because, you know, hey, patient's freaking blue or whatnot. That's why patient ratios are so important. Like, it's a lot harder to check on five patients compared to just, like, your two in your ICU or six or whatever you have metrics. And, and things do happen like that because you can't constantly be in a room, you know. But if you know your code status, you know, we don't have to, you know, go go crazy, you know, because... Because, yeah, um, being a full code sound, sounds great because you do want to live as long as you can, right? Like, ideally, you want to live as much as you can, as healthy as, as you can, and you want to be brought back if you do lose a pulse or you do stop breathing. But that's not for everybody. Like, you know, if you lived a very fulfilled life and, like, you're okay with, with passing, because we might bring you back, but your quality of life after a code is rarely the same as it was before. Like, I'm talking about, like, rarely, like, maybe 2% of, the, of you know, People that come back out of a code are are back to their normal selves. Of course, if you're younger, stats are a little bit more in, in your favor. But if you're above, you know, 40, 50, you know, your chance of of not having any kind of extra damage due to the code is is very minute. Like you're gonna be pretty fucked up. Plus, like you know, after you um you achieve ROSC, we usually code. We actually uh, cool you. So usually there's um induced hypothermia. So to preserve brain function, we freeze. We technically freeze the body down to, geez, I can't remember the hypothermia protocol. It's like 30, 34 Celsius. 34 or 32, something like that, but it's real cold. I don't think it's 32. No, it's, cold. Free, it's freezing I think point, the I think the, the machine does go to 32, but your body never actually gets that. Yeah, that and, and I think in this hospital, they only go down to like 35 because it's just evidence-based. Mm -hmm. But long story short, we cool you cool your body down for 24 hours post-cardiac, post-successful resuscitation of your body and your patient, and then you... After 24 hours, we recool you, uh, and that's what that's re how you, yeah rewarm, and then that's you know there's all all these electrolyte shifts and all this stuff that we could get into sometime if you guys are interested on the podcast. But that's what happens after we successfully saved you, and then and to make your point is what I'm saying is, yeah, rehab is gonna be crazy. Like you being down on in in that ICU bed laying down, that's gonna result to like two three months, whatever the amount of days you're intubated, like of rehab like it yeah, takes it a while work. it does and a lot of, not a lot of people like walk on all four or all twos afterwards and and all that so mm -hmm. it just depends on the situation it's we don't see it as much because we're more in the acute part 
but like looking at rehab because I've worked a few times when I floated and it's interesting seeing those patients that are like in-house rehab and seeing how they're still kind of like having a hard time doing things and they're struggling with like mental health afterwards mm-hmm. like it's it's a it's a long road for everything like the like being sick affects you in every single level it's not just the physical body which we as medical professionals see all the time in doctors because we just see like a mechanical body to fix but there's so much more that happens to that patient that we don't think about and that's why medicine has to be holistic has to be the whole human body that we have to take care of right yeah and even if you get you back and you go through rehab like it's say we get you out, out of uh, like say you code and we you know we bring you back you got rosk and all that jazz and you know we keep you alive for like a year but if that one year is, is spent straight in a hospital you know n- barely being able to walk was that like a year that you really want to go through like you know it's say you know and Things happen post cold too. Like people can have a stroke during a cold. Like you know, people could get a punctured lung. It's it's like uh, it's it's pretty traumatic. You could get fractured spinal cords, things like that. And and you know, just because we get, we get you back doesn't mean your quality of life is gonna be gonna be anywhere near what you wanted it to be or, or where you want to be in life. Yeah, that that's why deciding the code status is very important. Which we should probably talk about it now. The yeah. different dip, different types of code statuses, right? So there's not only one code. We have, we could do different treatment modalities based on what you want to be done, right? So the basic one is full code. That means we're doing everything possible. We're going to be pushing pressors, giving you meds, intubating you, putting on life support, and doing CPR, correct? That's the... How, how, how would you say that's the full package? That's full the top package. package when you come to the hospital. You're going to get an A-line. You're probably going to get a central line. You know, you're going to get everything. Everything yeah, going to be done. You might get a tube in the butt. just depends on, mm-hmm. the, on the situation. So then we have a DNR, which is do not resuscitate. When that order is signed by the patient, by the family member, by the power of attorney, whoever, we do not touch you as soon as your heart stops beating. And there's also be, there's also something like a, like a partial code, correct? There could be like a DNI, which is... Do not intubate. So that patient got extubated. The family saw the situation, saw how traumatic it is. The, the patient does not want to be re-intubated again. So we could have partial codes like that. We also have codes where, or partial codes like no meds. So we could do CPR. They don't want any medications given. Or they don't want CPR, but they want everything else. So we'll intubate you. We'll give you pressors. We will cardio virtue, meaning if your heart is like an SVT or a crazy rhythm, we could shock you or we could cardio virtue. So there's all these little things. And sometimes it gets freaking very damn tricky. So I had a patient that was looking at a note and she was a partial code. So she didn't want to, she did not want to be intubated. She did not want CPR, but she wanted to be cardioverted. And like, I forgot about it. It was like 6.50 in the morning. And I'm eating an ice cream, you know, before change of shift. And freaking, they open the door and they're like, Matt, your patient's in VTAC. I'm like, fuck. You know, I'm like, and I'm scrambling, running over there. And honestly, I forgot the code status for a damn second. I'm just like, let me do it. I'm opening up these damn notes, looking on her charts. Like, okay, hey, we can card over, put some pads on, you know what I mean? Uh, Give her an amiobolus. And actually, she converted herself. We didn't have to, you know, do anything. The amiobolus did its job. But it's just like, yeah, that. Those statuses are very important in a hospital. It gets a little bit trickier when you have like these partial codes and all that. Right. And then you could change like any time too. It's not like once you write it down, you're stuck with it forever. Yeah. Like I'd say you could be a DNR, which means we don't have to do anything. 
But let's say you want to go for a hip replacement. Well, guess what? That DNR is going to be off the table. So now you're going to be a full code. And we're going to do hip replacement. And then that DNR is going to come back whenever you want it to, right? So you could, it's not like you're going to be like that that forever. And let's say, um, you know, you code, you bring it back. You're like, damn, that CPR really fucked me up. So now let's move this from no CPR. Because some people want that. Some people just want medications and intubation, but they do not want anybody, you know, cracking their sternum. Because that within itself has has a long-term you know, rehab potential to begin with. So it's completely up to you guys. So maybe like, you know, bring it up to your parents or, you know, your loved ones or people that, that, you, that you see or even people in the hospital, just so people are aware of it because you're never, we're not sure what's going to happen, you know, and like, we're not doing it to scare anybody, but like, it's a lot easier for medical professionals to kind of dictate your treatment and your, and your care when we know your code status. Yeah. Right? And there's been so many times in a hospital where someone is really, really not doing well and you know that they are not going to do well when you code them, but you know they're going to code. And you you keep telling, talking, to, to, talking to the family and saying like, hey, your loved one isn't doing very well. Like he's on a bunch of medications. Um, we're doing everything we can, but he's not getting any better. We keep adding on more, but there's no more that we could add on. So eventually, you know, their heart might stop. Do you want us to do everything in our power to, you know, try and bring him back? And they'll say, yeah. And you're like, 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 shit, he's already on Epi, Levo, the beauty mean, you know, Neo, a bunch of other stuff. And you're just like, you know, we're basically giving him all these medications. He's maxed out on Levo, maxed out on Neo, and now you're adding Epi. So, like, all the fluid in his veins are basically pressors. It seems like everything in your vascular space are just pressors. You know, he's not going to come out of it. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not like it's, it sucks to say, but if you're maxed on all these pressors and we code you, and we're pushing epi when you already have an epi drip going like there's not a lot that we could do man yeah it's not going to add anything else you know yeah. and yeah there, and there, there's also these situations that like i had a foreign pa- you know family that came in and for some reason you know it was it was a rapid response came from pccu down to icu within like 30 minutes the patient codes and we're doing cpr and you know i'm talking to the family because i speak the language it was a you know, polish family and and I'm trying to explain everything that happened. The heart stopped beating. We're doing CPR. And, you know, I ask them, how long do you want us to do this? Because that's that's something that we have to know, right? You could run a code for freaking 30 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes. Like, what, what is it? And she's asking me, I, I don't know. What's, what's a good time to do this? And it's like, how do you how do you tell a family member, hey, I think your dad only deserves 10 minutes or your husband only deserves 15 or five. Like that's such a freaking hard thing to say, man. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, well, usually we typically do like 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you know, like I'm not making, I'm you know, it's hard to make up because there's no average, you know, we never time this. Every situation is so unique. And um, that, that specific case, you know, they never made it, but we did it for like over 10 minutes. And then, you know, then she kind of like walked into the room a little bit, saw the situation, saw how we're just, you know, it, it looks freaking gnarly, man. Somebody's just beating on your family's chest. And that's after she saw that instant. That's when we kind of said, hey, you know, let's let's stop everything. And, you know, we parted ways. Yeah, and 10 minutes is, is pretty long. It might not seem like super long, but every minute brain cells are dying, cardiac cells are dying, like your other cells are dying. And it's it, it's crazy. Like, in theory, we could have coded somebody for a very long time. Like, the last code I was on over here, we coded her for, like, what, 20, possibly 30 minutes. And then... um. We got our back and they just called it again, you know, so it's not like we get you back and yeah, oof, everyone's relaxed. No, it's like, hey, we got to figure out what the fuck is wrong for them to not call it again and we can't figure it out. 
quick enough, well, guess what? They're going to code again. Yep. And, and it's one of those things where it's not just one thing, it's multiple things. And you can't fix multiple things at once because, you know, you just can't. Like, we're not a machine where you can just swap out a liver, swap out a kidney, and then bang, the man's fixed. No, it's just like you have a bad kidney, so your hormones going up, and then you have bad bad kidneys. So guess what? You know your pH is sh- shooting up as well, and now you're just body's full of toxins because your liver's not clearing it, your kidneys aren't, aren't clearing it, and now you even got less renal perfusion and less hepatic perfusion because you just coated it. It's just like you know it's not gonna end very well. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of other situations. I had one that like I had this guy that came in, and we're dealing with. He had no family. He just had an uncle from like a different state, and we're like. We're coding the guy. I called the uncle. Hey, this is what's happening. And he's like, okay, do it for 10 minutes. Like, hangs up the phone, you know. 10 minutes later, guy's alive. Code him again. And it's like, sometimes we just, the family just just not aware of, like, what's happening. Like, we're putting this guy through torture, man. And, like, yeah, there's situations you just kind of pull the code early. There's other stif- stuff that happens that I don't even talk about, like, aka slow code. But, you know, maybe that's something for Patreon to chat about. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds kind of shitty, like slow code, but, like, trust me, like, we know, we know majority of the time how a code's going to go, man. Like, like, like we know. Like, we, we see these codes coming. Obviously, you can't see every code coming, but we see a lot of these codes coming, especially if they've been in ICU for a long time, and you've had his patient day in and day out, and you just see him degress and degress and degress, and you're just like, yeah, well, he's, you know, one step away from a code, and everyone's like, yeah, when is this guy going to code? You know, is he still full code? Like, yeah, family saw him make a full code. So it's like, shit, because you know that, you know, the patient's been here for four days. You know, he's, he's pushing his luck. Like, we're lucky he didn't code already. And, you know, day number five, he coded. You're just like, yeah, dude. I mean, we knew it was going to happen. It was kind of coming. It just sucks to be that nurse, you know, that it happens to. But that's just how, how, how it is, man. Yeah, and, I, and that's why families, like, have to be aware of, like, what happens. So when it comes to statuses, but also, like, post. Like, what, what do you want us to do if they're alive or... You know, like, let's just take it back. You know, code status is not only about CPR. It's also about, like, the amount of treatment we want to do for this person. Because we could we could artificially keep them alive forever, you know. And we always talk about this on the podcast. But, you know, quality of life. You could have, like, you know, traking that young guy in, in the hospital. You know, there's, you trach so many people and they come for, like, pneumonia, respiratory, chronic respiratory failures, high CO2s. Like, it's just like, yeah. what are we doing? They leave the hospital for a month. And they come back worse in sepsis, like I said, in pneumonia, like the pneumonia that leads to sepsis. And you're just like, damn, dude, like this guy and, is and, going bad. And that's, and you know, this goes into advanced directives, which is something, you know, we also should talk about that you could also do for yourself, which is almost like a living will. And advanced directives, like this legal document that allows you to write out the decisions of your like um, goals of care, end of life care, I should say, of what do you want to be done. You know, you could choose your code status. You could choose not to be artificially fed or not to be intubated. And also in that living will, you could decide on who is like the, you know. What advanced directive in that living will? That's, yeah, that's what I meant. But usually on a nursing school, we talk about both of them simultaneously, right? Yeah. Like they're mentioned. Usually when somebody goes to clean the living will, they usually advanced directive portion. But the thing is like, if you don't have a strap of advanced directives and you just have things that you want done in your, in your living will, the hospital doesn't have to enforce that. It has to be advanced directive format. And in advanced directives, you could also assign like the healthcare power of attorney, right? Mm, yeah. Which is the POA, and the POAs is going to be this designated person during any kind of event we call, we explain the situation, and this person makes like the life life decisions on your behalf. Well, okay. this is only when you are not able to make the decision yourself. Yes. So it's, let's say 
I have a power of attorney. Let's say Matt's not my power of attorney. He's in my direct, advanced directives. I want to be a, a, a DNR, right? Well, can I go to hospital? And Matt knows I'm in a hospital. Like, yeah. They're not going to call Matt to ask for, hey, can we put a central line in, into Peter? Because if I could respond and I'm 80 times four and I'm completely with it and I'm coherent, I, make my, I could still make my own decisions. Yes. And I could still be like, hey, yeah, I have advanced directives that say DNR, but while I'm here, I want to be a full code. You, you could do that. It's not just whatever advanced directives say. That's not, it's not it. You could change it whenever you want. That's only in times of you not being able to make decisions yourself. Like being, if I came to hospital, I'm intubated, sedated, obviously can't respond, and Matt's my power of attorney and my advanced directives say that I'm a, you know, DNR, they're not going to extubate me. You know, let's say I coded on the spot and nobody knew and they intubated me and, and like, and, and all that, and I was a DNR. Well, guess what? They didn't know that outside of hospital, right, where I, where I coded. They'll bring me in and they'll keep me alive and it'll be up to Matt to, to decide now. Yes. Hey, what, what should we do? He's a DNR, technically, but he's stabilized. So Matt might want to say that, hey, if you be stable, keep a DNR, but don't escalate any kind of extensive measures when he goes into cardiac arrest again. You know, but they could still, you know, put me on pressors, things like that to help me get better. But when I code, you know, I won't have any CPR and things yeah. like that. Or let's just say another scenario with a power of attorney. Peter's in the hospital. He was making his own decisions for three days. Fourth, fifth day, let's just say he got confused. Something happened. Delirium confusion then if there has to be a like a special procedure done or something that requires his decision or his consent they can call the power of attorney explain the situation because peter is not like conscious he's not alert and oriented he's not conscious enough to make decisions for himself mm -hmm. then that would go into power of attorney yeah, yeah a, little, a little complicated a little confusing but that's just that's just you know how legal doctrine is you got to make sure that it's written somewhere so people know and like advanced directives are very important because like, you know what you want. Don't don't have the family decide what you want done, right? Like, of course, if you don't have it, it's too late. They're going to have to decide. But don't put that pressure on your, on your family to decide how you should live, right, or what they should do when yeah. you're when you're in this situation. Because that's that's a hard decision to make. I've never had a family that that had an easy easy role of, of doing that, right? It's never like, okay, yeah, let's make him a, a, a DNR. No, it's always like, uh, I'm not sure I got to talk it over my family. Like, you know, it gets drawn out to a week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, like things like that. And then it finally becomes like a DNR. But this is very important because don't leave that to your family because your family's going to struggle with it because you're not there to make decisions for them, right? And it's a decision should be made by you because it's for you. And it's in such a dire time and dire need for that decision where everyone is super stressed and it just calms everyone's anxiety down. Like when my grandpa was, was in hospital from a stroke, he didn't tell anybody like what to do yeah. or what did he want done. And that was horrible on my, on my family. Like, nobody knew what to do. Some people said everything, they want everything done. Some people said they don't want anything done. And then when a doctor came in, whoever said that they want everything done flipped and wanted nothing done. And the other person flipped the other way. So it was like a giant mess. Yeah. You know, and then they came to me, me being like the only medical person in the family, like asking, hey, what do you, what do you think? I'm just like, dude, like, I don't know, like, I'm his, I'm his grandson, yeah, but we never really talked about this kind of shit. Like, you guys should be kind of guiding here. I, all I was able to do was kind of explain a little bit more in detail, and a little bit further of what, like, the physician's notes were or what the doctors were saying. But the decision was, like, almost put on me. You know, I was like, fuck, dude. Right. And but, then, but then we just talked it over, and we finally got through it, and we decided to make the make the best decision because, you know, we remember our grandpa for, for who he was and kind of, like, how he would want to live, how much... Um, how much like 
brain damage, he was okay with taking on and still being able to kind of live and function. We knew that the way he would come out of it wouldn't be the way he wanted to live. So we kind of yeah. just decided to, you know, uh, just go with the de-escalation of care. Respect, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what's like hard, man, is just seeing these family members suffering when things could have been prevented, things could have been communicated better, and there could have been a lot less hardship towards the end of somebody's life. Because yeah. that's, like that's like the worst thing to see. Not only are you seeing somebody pass away, but you see families torn apart, mm-hmm. arguing, not knowing what the right decisions to do. And usually there's those family members that have opposite viewpoints. And it's you, you're, you're usually going to be arguing or and undecisive and different interests, different interests and the doctor. What do you think we should do? And that's and it's hard to you know give that kind of opinion as a nurse to a patient. And sometimes they'll ask you for that opinion. Mm. And it's hard to give them the gist. You know, I, I like to be straightforward and tell people for what it is or I'll tell them exactly like what is a quality of life this person expected to have. Like I'll give them I'll give them like the 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 reality check of what it is to be tracked or intubated or this is going to be done and I, then I let them decide. I, I never try to like persuade too much of an opinion. And that's what you try to do too, just always shine perspective onto your patients and educate them. I don't tell them I don't tell them of outcomes unless they ask you for outcomes. What I usually do is um, basically, what I do with with every situation is when they ask me, "Hey, what, what do you think we should be do?" Um, I explain to them like once again where the patient is at, like, "Hey, he's on medication for this and this," and um, I'm lucky if I had that patient for a few shifts, not just one shift, you know, because then you kind of know how the treatment has been, been progressing. Yeah. So, let's say I have a patient that's you know slowly been been weaned off the press, pressures, you know, every day where it seems like we're going down on levo. So, like, I'll explain that to them, like, "Hey, um, uh, your father's mother's still really sick, you know, they're on." These four medications, three of these are for blood pressure. The other one is, is for his, his sedation to calm him down. And, you know, the past couple of days, we've slowly been decreasing his medication, which, which, which is good. But the thing is that your father is, is still really sick. He's still really septic. He's got a bad heart. He's, you know, 86, six years old. So that's kind of how, like, that kind of a spiel. I'll give that spiel. But I would never tell them, like, outcome-based, like, unless they ask me. Like, if they ask me, hey, how often do you see somebody come out of this? Then I would. Then I would tell them. Yeah. But if, if they're not asking for a, like a direct outcome question, then I'll, I want to bring it up because then that's kind of going to screw, screw, their, screw their opinion and it might not be what they're exactly looking for and it might just put that thought in their, in their head by accident. So what I usually do is just remember your, your, your father for, for the good times and remember how, how he was, how he lived. And if he ever mentioned on... Uh, if he ever mentioned anything about death and dying or being in a hospital, try and remember that and, and see what he told you. Like, did he ever say that, hey, he wants to be under like the vent or any kind of medication? How long does he want to stay in a hospital for? If he ever mentioned it and anything like that, um, it's best to kind of take in his wishes. Because even though you guys are very emotional right now, and I'm sorry that this is happening to you, it's just very hard. I want to say I understand, but I'm not in your situation, so I can't really understand what you guys are going through, yeah. but it's very hard. So try to put yourself to the side and think about what your loved one would want to be done to them in a situation. And then that kind of kind of puts puts them, it kind of a little shocks them a little bit because they're so focused on their emotions. They're so intense because, hey, their dad's dying in, in, in the hospital. Like they're, they might never see their dad again, but they're so in tune in their emotions and their emotions are so strong. The grief, the sadness, the anger is so strong where they, they, they forget what their actual dad wanted because they're so scared of losing that person. That, that's actually a very good point. Mm-hmm. So, so that's you, why I always bring up that. You kind of you kind of help them get this like third person view, mm-hmm. and you're putting that person in that person's shoes. 
That's, that's actually very good to do. You are right. And we do it so often. We're, we're wrapped up in our own emotions, just like with like self-esteem and stuff. Like we think like, oh my God, everybody's looking at me. But in all reality, no one gives a flying shit mm. and you, no one is focused. But yet we try to, we create this whole center of, of focus on us. And we think like, you know, it's, it's all us and all feelings, all emotion. It's just what I'm feeling. Yeah. Or even, even when you have that conversation with somebody and they basically say, I feel, or this is like, this is me. They're not even under, you're not even being heard, bro, because you're, you're they're, they're hearing just what they're thinking, mm -hmm. what they're feeling. And they're just projecting that opinion. It's really hard to have somebody that's that aware, that's able to take themselves out and have that empathy to see how that person feels. Yeah, it's hard. It, 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 it takes a level of, I don't know, you want to call it IQ or some emotional skill? Yeah, I don't know. It's even hard, like, um, it's even harder as, as a nurse putting yourself in a patient's shoes because we see a lot of cold, you see a lot of death and dying, but still, still real hard to kind of gauge what's going to happen. And it's still hard to make the decision. Like every time there's a family that's kind of debating on a, what kind of cold status tool to put their loved one on, like usually I can't even figure it out either. Like, you know, it's just like, like there's no wrong answer. There is. I want to say, but. It's, I say that with a little grain of salt because there has been times where, you know, you see a patient really, really struggle and a family is still pushing, still pushing, just like, dude, it's, is it like really worth it? But it's essentially it's up to them, you know. That's why, you know, you, you don't really know what your family's going to kind of put you through if you don't uh, outline it in like in words or, or in paper because you're, ideally your family's going to want to keep you alive as long as they can, you know, not... And, so, and you can't let them know that, hey, I'm, I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to pass. I'm, I'm, I want to go. You can't tell them that when you're intubated, sedated, or when you're stroke, you're not a verbal. Yep. You can't tell them that, right? Even though you know you're ready, like you've been ready for years and years, and the moment actually happens and you didn't have advanced directive, and now, you know, you're, you're struggling. You're, the thing is that, like, you know what's crazy? You don't know what's going on in someone's head when they're dying. That's why it's so hard mm -hmm. to kind of have a perspective or kind of gauge which way to 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 go with these ideas right because you don't know if someone's in a giant state of euphoria like you know are they in like an amazing dream and they die or are they struggling when they die like you you don't you don't you, you don't know man like you don't really know if they're sedated and intubated and you know they're dying what's going on in, in their head do they know what's going on yeah or, or is it just like or or, or they just like or has a soul or left the body and just a, just just like just an animal it's a great mystery man mm -hmm. and i think we're not meant to find out the answer never know because no one ever came back and told us, you know, what's up. And you've had those people that had those near-death experiences, but they don't. I don't think they remember much. Mm. They just all they say is they just had this flashback of their whole life is in front of them. That's that's all you hear. I don't know if that's a myth or not, but yeah, that's all you hear. Some people don't know, don't have anything. It's just like it's it's all over the place. You can't really gauge it. Like I don't. Yeah. I haven't even. I haven't dug into research. Maybe we can. Maybe we should look that for another episode. That'd be pretty cool. Like near-death experiences. Or people that have what come out of codes, said. how they feel. It's not a bad idea. It's pretty cool. That would be cool. We'll, we'll think about this. Mm -hmm. But e even this whole episode, like we guys, we give you guys episode and it's just for you decide, for you to digest and for you to make your own decisions and for you to educate your family. And if they, and if they don't take this education, then, you know, down the line, you might just have the situation where there's just a crisis. It's just part of life. That's just how humans are. That's just how stubborn they are. But at least now you guys have the idea to be aware of the different situations and maybe how to approach it a little bit better. If you, if, if there's any takeaway from this podcast episode, right. Or even if you're in your hospital with somebody and you know, your family member and the nurse asks you, Hey, 
what code size do you want or what code size does your father want? Now you kind of have an idea, oh, well, there's a DNR, there's a full code, and there's like these modified ones. You kind of have already a kind of gist of it. So just for that, you're going to be a little bit smarter and kind of a little bit more more prep for these 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 sad occurrences that, that happen with life. Yeah, and it's just part of life, death is. That's one thing that's for certain in life is dying. Yep. Dying in pain, no big deal. We all, we all go through pain in yeah. different ways, in different doses. And even people get married, what do they say? It's like, till death do us apart or something like yes. that? Yes. Till death, till death do us apart or till death do us apart, one or the other. But Till death do us apart. Mm. All right, guys, thank you for tuning in. A little bit of a, a, little bit of a sadder episode today, but, you know, everyone's got to know about co-statuses. There's a lot of them. Just make sure you know what it is. Get your advanced directives if you, if you guys are older. If you're not older, you could probably still get them done, but just kind of touch upon it with your family members so you are kind of in in the shoes of being prepared for and not just in, in giant shock and turmoil when this actually happens. Agreed. See you guys next week. So Peace.